Commanders, and welcome to a special episode of Lave Radio, the show that usually talks about the universe of Elite and the community that surrounds it, but we're not going to talk about that tonight. Instead, we're going to be talking about our other favourite game, Chaos Reborn. Tonight, I'm joined by Alan Stroud. Hello, Alan. Hiya. And we're also fortunate enough to be joined by Chaos Reborn's creator, Julian Gollop. Hello. Hello. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know it's, uh, it's two hours ahead over there. Yeah, it's nearly 10 o'clock in the evening here, and I'm I'm actually feeling quite tired already. <laughs> quite similar to last time we... we yeah, yeah. Actually. Okay, well, we'll try and keep it short and sweet. So, uh, first up, Julian, um, I, I gather that there's been a lot of progress. Uh, we met at LaveCon, and you said that there was a kind of a, a, an update impending. So, yes. how is development uh, progressing? Well, we've got two major things in the next update plus a very little exciting new feature, which I'd be very happy to talk about. So the first thing is the Forge Master. Uh, This is something that was promised in our uh, Kickstarter, and people who backed the game at that level would have access to the Forge Master tools. Basically, allow you to create your own customized set of equipment and your own unique look for your wizard, uh, both female and male versions. You can create uh, your overall body gear and you can colorize it you can add various elements to it and you can set the basic stats for your body gear you want the more aggressive the wizard more defensive uh, more magical and you can then customize a staff and you can choose the type of the staff and you can add effects and elements to it and again you set the stats in terms of the hand size and the power boosting and what mega spell you want and you basically end up with something rather unique looking that's just your personal creation. So that's the Forge Master tools. And the next main thing is, is I guess, a major update to the Realm Quest system, which we did introduce in the last major update, which we released um, just before LaveCon. So the original Realm Quest was, was very, very simple. So you, you entered the realm, you explored with your wizard, you found enemy wizards, Um, occupying various installations like mana fluxes and citadels and ruins. And you had to basically challenge more to a a battle, which was just played in a tactical battle arena like an ordinary chaos game. And then ultimately, when you defeat all of those wizard lords, you then fight the wizard king in his palace. So that was it. That was basically the realm quest. There's basically an exploration element to it, being that you can travel through wizard towers that are connected by teleportation and through towns connected by sea routes and so on. But there wasn't really much element of a strategy to it. So what we've done in the next update is actually added a um, a simple but interesting strategy layer. So now what happens is when you enter a realm, there are still wizard lords that you have to fight, but the enemy wizard is releasing these marauder wizards and they will pursue you and um, try and take over things that you're trying to capture. And from your point of view, you've also got these different types of settlements now around the realm. 
and there are 10 different types and they tend to be grouped around certain types of creatures or you know um cooperative associations of creatures so for example they're like an elven village and the elven village will produce elven fighters and also some unicorns and on the chaos side because they're all by alignment these settlement types on the chaos side you might have a vampire castle which can produce vampires as fighters but also hellhounds and skeletons and uh, so on so you can recruit these villages to your cause and you can use the fighters from the villages to try and capture or defend locations and the things you want to capture are the mana fluxes to generate mana and once you generate mana from those you can use them to actually cast realm spells which is another new feature and the realm spells allow you to upgrade villages uh, explore the map and also most importantly cast the palace breach spell which allows you to get access to the king's palace so you don't have to kill all the wizard laws but you do have to cast a spell to gain access to the palace to challenge the king and we have added to this system which makes it much more tactical and strategic, by the way. We've added to this system a feature called Invade. And what this means is that while you're playing your realm, you can you can set your options here to either Invade or Ally. If you set it to Ally, it works a bit like in the last um, Realm Quest mode. It means you can help another player in his realm in one of his battles if he's requested an Ally. But if you select Invade, it means that you can actually take control of an enemy wizard in another player's realm. So he might end up playing a wizard who's not controlled by the AI, but is actually controlled by you as an invader. So that can make things a little bit more interesting because you know if you if you're not if you're playing against a human player, you've got this element of unpredictability, and if it's a good player, it might be quite tough and so on. So um, these are all the main features that we're adding. Okay, sounds good. In terms of all these new features, I'm thinking the marauding wizards and things like that. You know, how much of that was part of maybe you know your original concept back during the kickstarter and how much of it would you say is kind of new things that have evolved well i think most of this is is evolution from the kickstarter concept because the the original concept in the kickstarter was to have something very simple and we kind of more or less implemented that with the the first realm quest update but i i think the thing which is really missing is that sort of strategic level game what we've got now is something a little bit more like maybe what we had in XCOM, where you've got the strategic layer and you've got a tactical layer. And they both interact with each other, where they both feed off each other. And the strategic layer in itself is kind of almost like a, a game where you have to consider you know, which villages to recruit, which ones to attack, where to send the fighters from those villages to defend which areas. And you need to try and figure out which areas you want to capture and which ones you want to try and defend and you can't do everything of course so it has uh, and of course you've got these resources now which you can take control of like the mana coming from these the meta mana coming from these mana fluxes and you also earn something called um, law kudos or chaos kudos which is allows you to recruit villages uh, these villages and settlements and the strategic layer is it, although it's simple it's it has transformed the game quite a bit and, and we'll see how players react to it so with this new update is there anything you're um, uh, a bit nervous about releasing i was uh, anything we're a bit nervous about well i guess yes i think the, the, i think everybody will absolutely love the forge master stuff because i mean it, it just works really nicely and is really cool so i have no no doubt people will really like that on the you know realm quest side the new strategic layer i i think this is going to be much more interesting to see what the reaction is because it's not something that we have really talked about and discussed much before because it's you know mostly new ideas or so i did mention this a little bit 
you know, when we first you know, released the Realm Quest mode, I, I said that we were going to expand it. And um, so this is what we come up with. So I'll be very interested to see the, the uh, players' reaction to it. And I guess I'm most interested to see how players react to the, the sort of these social, you know, the interaction elements, the invade and ally options, which had this element of, of multiplayer you know, interaction. Uh, and what we plan to do next is actually integrate this invade and ally feature with the with the sort of the guild system so basically what you'll be doing is that you will be able to request allies and volunteer as an ally for players who are in the same guild but when you select invade you'll actually be invading the realms of players who belong to opposing guilds and this then ties into the the guild competition and um the guild rankings because uh, what, one of the questions we actually had uh, from the forum thread that we opened was about what role will guilds play in the game? Is there any kind of detail that you can give us in exactly how that will work? Well, the guilds will uh, allow players to cooperate in various ways, but there's also like a guild competition. So the guilds also have rankings and have a ranking each month. And the guild ranking depends on the performance of its players in either multiplayer games or, or in the realm quests. So... If you like, the single player game can also become part of the cooperative element between the guilds. So um, having high guild rankings can also earn the, the guild master, who's a, a demigod, can earn him the possibility to be promoted to a god. So that's one of the things he is or he or she is, is trying to achieve. Um, but the benefit from being in a guild is that you get you know, players to help you out in your realm quests, basically. There's a couple of topics that I just wanted to hit. Two topics that interest me particularly, but they're quite pertinent to Chaos Reborn because just due to the nature of the game, you know, the use of random numbers and chance in Chaos, it's been a subject for discussion on many occasions. And was it last week you wrote an article and kind of addressing the role of chance in games? Yes, yeah, it was an article on Gamma Sutra, yeah. I did an interview there and um, and the, the guy who interviewed me picked up on the elements of, of uh, really chance and randomness in games. It's one of the more controversial elements about Chaos Reborn. And I mean, it's very clear that some gamers, I mean, especially modern gamers, certainly not gamers who have been around from like me from the 80s, are very, very opposed to randomness in games. Because they, I guess there's this idea that games are all about skill and having anything which frustrates them in their you know, ability to control or predict, they just think is undesirable in games. So, you know, there's that element. But on the other hand, there is also a another group of players who enjoy a bit of randomness because it means that things are kept, you know, a little bit uncertain, unpredictable, and therefore a little bit interesting and exciting, perhaps. And in Curse Reborn, the, the random element has a, a really a number of functions, but... Now, one of the main things it does is kind of make sure that you, you never really quite have the same experience each time you play a game. No, no matter how much you try to plan it, prepare and what, you know, however much you try and pursue a particular strategy, you know, it's kind of, um, there's never something that's going to be the same twice. And in terms of the actual skill level in the game, and randomness does not mean the game doesn't have skill. And in particular, when you're playing a, for example, a, a Coast Reborn battle, typically if it's a two-player battle, maybe it doesn't take more than maybe 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes if you're playing reasonably quickly. So over the course of a large number of battles, so if you play during the course of a month, you know, I mean, some players are playing over 100, then of course, ultimately, randomness does kind of even out. 
you know, the skill emerges quite clearly from the any noise that is generated by randomness. And that is, is very clear because some of our, our best players are, are really frighteningly good. You know, they have very, very high win to, to lose ratios. So I think it's very difficult for people to dismiss it that they're just losing or winning down to luck. That's clearly not the case. Um, in fact, that's probably n not in a way the main objection to, to randomness in games. But the, I think there is actually a skill with dealing with randomness and probabilities, which is not the same kind of skill as the more deterministic methods you might use, say, with a game of chess. Quite clearly, some players are very good at this compared to others. Why do you think that some players have such an aversion to, you know, to the role of, you know, chance in games, or, or in particular, why is there this this kind of belief that, you know, deterministic games are skillful, whereas games that involve chance are less so? It might be something to do with personality, but it was, I think it's also something to do with the player's own gaming culture and their background, you know, where they've come from. I, I would argue even where players are using deterministic game systems there is in fact still always an element of of chance or randomness because wherever you have a complex system where it's very difficult to predict outcomes except you know in the very near future um, there's always going to be an element of uh, experimentation on part of the player and not being sure what the actual outcome would be even if it's a completely deterministic system uh, and I think the people who, who argue for deterministic, deterministic systems say that when a player experiments, they get very concrete feedback as to what works and what doesn't, and therefore that makes the game better. I guess that's, you know, that's one argument. Even though, in fact, there may be a lot of unpredictability in what the player's actually doing. And I think that's a fair point, but in a, a game which has significant elements of randomness, it's a bit more difficult to try and analyse the feedback from your actions. You know, you could be doing, your strategy might work because of some, uh, you know, lucky outcomes a few times rather than because it was a good strategy. But I think that is something that you only really get to figure out over repeated experimentation anyway. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I, I think there's an element, again, as I say, it's, it's probably two things mainly is that the, it's the personal, if like, psychological preferences of that player how they react to randomness and how they deal with it. And secondly, what they've, where they've come from, what they're used to in terms of what they've been playing. I mean, is there not also a consideration that, that sports tend to be deterministic in terms of their structure? So, you know, you have defined rules, you have people have defined roles, uh, they perform those, those defined roles. So there is a considered idea of hard skill management. There is a considered idea of direct correlation to this is how much I, I, I work on this, this is how much I train, therefore, this is how, you know, how I can improve, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, certainly from my take on it, I would say that what you were saying about managing randomness is actually the skill, you know, and, and you see it's that in, skill, yes. in tabletop wargaming, you see that in, yeah. you know, in other and well-crafted games where they incorporate randomness yeah. The experienced player manages the randomness effectively uh, within their attempt to play, whereas games that just base their uh, their outcome on randomness don't feel as if you have influenced them. So there is a there is a balance between those those two points. Um, yeah. I'd also say I think I think there's also one other thing in here in that if you are playing a game that has no random element within it, then or, or at least, well, yeah, I mean, 
there are still the, the the fact is is that my choice versus your choice provokes randomness because I don't know what you're going to choose and you don't know what yeah. I'm going to choose. So you know, so we can argue, you know, sort of down into into those categories. But you know, that is still a very defined set of outcomes. Whereas actually, if there is a there is an unpredictable set of outcomes, there is a narrative effect in terms of your your conclusion. Because actually, in your game experience, you would never be able to plan or recognize exactly what was going to happen through that process. And that random event might become the, the sort of, you know, the plot hinge, the story hinge, the, the thing that, that made the game for the evening. You know, the fact that the rat beat the dragon yes. is the thing that everyone talks about. So... Mm. You know, by by bringing that element into what's there, what you're actually doing is you're shaping story as well. Yes, absolutely, and and your story can develop a way which you're you're not completely controlling, and it's it can make things much more interesting. I mean, you can distinguish between different types of randomness as well. I mean, going back to the sports analogy, you know, people will think, well, yeah, sports are all about skill and it's purely deterministic because of the laws of physics and so on. But actually, there's an awful lot that you can't really predict. Even in ordinary sports games like tennis match or a football match, you know, you, the, you know, in general, the highest skilled player may win, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. Uh, and it could be for many reasons. And these are things which are kind of just not necessarily in your control. And yeah, going back to the tabletop analogy, often, you know, random results from, from die rolls are kind of used to, in a very simple way, simulate things which are just beyond your control as they would be if you were a commander of a, an army, for example. So, you know, if you're a commander of an army, you're, you're about to commit your troops, you've got something, you know, the general balance of forces, you've got something like two to one odds, but um, which means that you stand a good chance of winning a battle, but there's still things that are just beyond your control or you just don't know about that you cannot plan for or predict. So often randomness has been used to to simulate, you know, and lots of, um, you know, simulations, of course, use, use randomness to, to simulate these things. And in a way, that's where I come from, you know, with my experience of board and strategy games in the past. This is the way randomness has always been used to, to simulate those things which you just do not really have control over so to take the example of the rat and the dragon i mean it could be that the 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 dragon is just moment momentarily distracted the rat spotted a, a weak spot that just didn't you know the dragon accidentally exposed because he was distracted or something and it just so happened that when the rat bit the dragon it happened to hit a major vein <laughs> now that kind of thing you know you just don't know isn't that also that's also the way in which we we start i mean if you take if you take the the dice roll the the introduction of something that you cannot control at all at its um, at its purest you can kind of see why someone who who perhaps can't accept that wouldn't want to play a game that had that within it. However, once you start using the randomness as a representation, and once you start inventing your own representation of why that randomness occurs. That is exactly, that's when we end up yeah. with story. Yes, and that's when exactly. we end up with, you know, yes. and we're, we're essentially, what we're doing there is attempting to make sense of something which actually is indefinable in terms of its um, its its purest form because it's a probability. Yeah. But actually what we're doing is we're creating a, um, you know, a deterministic idea or a deterministic perception of it because ultimately the game is representative. So, you know, it's just a, another extension of that, that representative um, sort of narrative, uh, narrative construction. 
yeah, I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the the uh, human beings like to impose meaning on all kinds of patterns, even if they might be completely random. And it's just a natural thing that we do. And it's something that helps us make sense of the world and, and be able to actually control and influence it. And in a way, it's all about influence because in reality, you, you never actually control everything 100%. Nothing, nothing really is 100% predictable. Um, what you're trying to do all the time is influence things or make contingencies for things and so on and so forth. That is in a way what kind of uh, strategy games have often been all about is that you are managing things at a slightly higher level. What you can do is influence outcomes, sometimes quite dramatically. And you can also make decisions about how much risk you want to take, how much risk you don't want to take. And uh, and this is one of the interesting things also is that in Chaos Reborn is that sometimes the best strategy is to be risk averse. That is to hunker up, try and defend yourself, try and wait for an opportunity. And sometimes the um, the best thing to do is to take big risk because it might be your best opportunity to to win the game, for example. And I think it's probably the case that some players find it difficult to switch between these kinds of behaviors, you know, um, whereas the good players know when to be cautious and when to take risks. This is the way that I've tried to balance things in Chaos Reborn. So it's not always the best strategy to be completely defensive and it's not always the best strategy to be completely aggressive. It depends exactly and entirely on the actual concrete situation, which may change from one turn to the next. You never know. Uh, just going back to that example, the, you know, the famous example of rats killing dragons, I, I look at it as like a real Marmite moment. I mean, personally, and I think Alan would agree that it, it's a great event, which, you know, <laughs> creates story, but in a way, it, you know, it can really get the emotions pumping. I've played against players and, and when something like that's happened, the dragon's gone down to a rat, you know, they feel really hard done by. And it's it's kind of this like, natural human emotion or, or reaction to something yeah. like that and i'm kind of reminded back of like the original apple ipod the shuffle mode on there was based on a just a normal like a real random number generator but the feedback they got was that users were really unhappy because of course you know it was truly random so there was actually a chance that you could listen to the same song twice or, you know, it pick yes. three songs from the same album and you're like, oh, this is broken. There hasn't been any kind of temptation to kind of fudge in something to kind of deal with that kind of mentality. Yeah, well, we have discussed actually the different ways to dealing with this. And actually uh, quite a few games have dealt with randomness in different ways. One popular method is like a card drawing from a deck type method, to use the analogy. So basically what happens if you're trying to generate random numbers, like say you've got a deck of cards numbered from one to a hundred, uh, and what you do is you you're, every time you want a random, you shuffle the deck. Every time you want a random number, you draw a card from the deck, and of course it's going to be random. Yeah, you never know which number. But what you do know for sure is the number that you've already had. You're not going to get again until the deck has run out. So by the time you've exhausted the deck, you've guaranteed that you've had a completely even distribution of numbers from one to a hundred. So some games use use this method. Uh, sometimes they do it explicitly. Sometimes they do it with without letting the players know this is how it works. Um, at the moment, in Chaos Reborn, we are we just have what we have is just a very the normal standard random numbers generator comes with .NET. That is it. Uh, we're not trying to do anything like this at the moment. I I'm not convinced we we need to either. Um, but it doesn't stop players complaining that they have these extraordinary runs of bad luck. 
like they they lose you know that the, the uh, dragon has attacked five creatures in five turns and hasn't managed to kill any of them even though he's got the chance of it this happening as like you know two percent or something but of course you know the, the these events when they happen are the things that you remember because they stand out and and this is where people start to get suspicious of random number generators and uh you know some people don't believe that they're being random <laughs> you can't do anything to persuade them otherwise i'm afraid the one thing i was going to ask specifically is obviously you i don't know if there's a lot that you can do about you know creatures you know the, the chances of uh, attacks being successful but things like um when when they first get dealt their hand are there any rules in there which you know make sure that a player's not going to get amazingly you know 10 magic bolts or something like that yeah there are some simple rules down there i think you, you can't have more than two of the same spell for example oh right because i had three yeah. three gooey blobs earlier well if you would have three gooey blobs if you had it bound with a spellbinding talisman that's fair enough so yeah there are limitations and obviously though there is there is some balancing element in the sense that you each staff has certain biases for example but yeah the main thing is you can't have more than two duplicates in a in a deck okay yeah i was going to sort of draw us back a little bit to the you know to the problems of of people defining causality or defining uh, intention behind uh, randomness and actually I, I think that's it's something that games for the most part sometimes they manage this you know the way in which players uh, invent their own you know intention uh, sometimes they manage that well sometimes they manage it not so well they tend to manage it well in the positive so if for example we talk we, we talk about the rat and dragon scenario again if you're the the player who controls the rat you love your rat you want to use your rat again you know your rat has now leveled up in your eyes uh, he might not have done in the game but he has leveled up in your eyes and therefore there is you know there are ways in which game design can reward that and the ways in which game design can can enhance that however if your dragon died you are almost cursing the you know the the outcome and that's a slightly more difficult challenge for a, for a designer to embrace um, and i you know and i mean we've had this discussion before john you said about the marmite moment I love the phrase. I love the fact <laughs> that you use my phrase. The point of of that sort of moment is is obviously that somebody is going to kind of walk away, or they're going to accept it. And ways in which you can embrace losing and embrace losing within the fact that the player is already defining some kind of intention behind what is actually a random outcome, I think, is a real challenge. You're particularly in negative outcomes and and i think but i think it's a real opportunity too i don't think it's a you know so so rewards that require defeat actually are you know a a, a real area where where games can kind of you know can kind of populate you know particularly if if that that then becomes part of your strategy or that then becomes part of what you what you you know what you do going forwards okay the second topic maybe you've given it some thought was chaos reborn as a competitive game so obviously it's a game of strategy which obviously is ideal for competition. Have you done anything in particular to make it more likely to be a successful competitive game? You mean like an eSport? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the, the, one, of the, one of the main things that you have to get right with any game that is going to become an eSport is to have a good, a very well-balanced game system. And that means that you know that, that certain things are not absolutely overpowered or underpowered that everything has a, a use in the right situation and the everything flows from the 
strategy and interaction with the players. I think that's very important. I think the other thing is that, yeah, I mean, we want to develop more competition modes. So that is different types of organizational competitions, also different types of rules for the actual battles. So what we're planning to do there, it's been in the plan for quite a long while, is to have an independent tournaments programming interface, which anybody who's got some reasonable programming skills will be able to organize and manage their own tournaments through their own website, for example, uh, which could be very interesting. Probably will also expand some of the modes that we've got at the moment. There's actually one more mode planned, which we call the synchronous mode, which is basically where each player is given exactly the same set of spells and equipment from which they have to discard a certain proportion of it before going into battle. So a little bit like a drafting system um, that you might have in a collectible card game or something similar to the arena system in Hearthstone. Um, that does sound quite interesting. I mean, well, one, yeah. game balance is obviously a massive uh, issue yeah. with, with uh, competitive games. I mean, I'm reminded of, I think it's Dota 2. I don't know if you've ever played i haven't played it uh, no. um but what's happened is they've created so many characters and, and i believe it was driven by the their financial model was to sell these characters but the problem is that with so many characters in the game it was so difficult to balance them on a per character basis um but not just that but some characters form synergies which could become ridiculously mm -hmm. overpowered and right. so what's happened is that a meta game has in effect been created where before a game starts at the character selection screen, players take it in turns to ban the other team from selecting certain characters. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, now, some people have said that they like this because it's they think of it as another form of strategy. But I suppose as an eSport, it's a bit of a failure in that you're going to spend 15 minutes on a character select screen talking to each other before you actually get into the game. Um, it doesn't sound very exciting. Does no, it? <laughs> no, I don't I don't think it does myself. But the problem is that I think even the games developers themselves have kind of bought into this idea that it adds strategy, even though you see, it's not... Yeah, I, I like it. I, I like the idea. I, th I think that, that idea of it, uh, you know, sort of a bidding almost like bridge, you know, has a, a sort of a, a you yeah. know, bidding thing beforehand, doesn't it? I don't know. I mean, uh, have you ever played Amber, John? No. Okay, so Amber, the, the diceless role-playing game, which basically is is trying to take a role-playing game in a, in a completely different direction. Uh, it's based on Zelezny's, uh, Roger Zelezny's series, The Chronicles of Amber. And in that series, you only had, you had a limited number of characters who were real, and then everything else in, you know, in the multiple realities that they walked through were echoes and inventions of their own imagination. So during the role playing game, the very beginning, there are no there are no statistics to be generated. There are nothing. There is nothing to be you know, to be sort of pointed out uh, in in a, a way that you would recognize in other games. Instead, what the players do is they bid against each other to determine who is the strongest. And then they bid, it, bid against each other to determine who is the most agile and so on. And you end up with a whole set of parameters ranking you against everybody else. And the GM can also bid if they choose to. I think the GM can bid related to, you know, to NPC characters. So you kind of, you know that you're part of a, a slightly larger story than just the players. But what that then, it also transcends the gaming experience because then when the players go through the, the role-playing game, uh, they don't feel empowered in terms of their own choice. So you get some quite frustrated players who are used to sitting there and choosing to, I don't know, use a particular skill to try and do something 
And in any other game, they'd go get their dice and they'd roll their dice and they'd go, yes, because I won or, or, oh, no, you know, and, and then that would be interpreted as the narrative. But actually, the whole of that power is given over to the games master to just interpret the narrative because they know what the relationships are between the characters already. I, I suppose the, the issue I have with Dota 2, obviously, is that this whole meta game, it, it's, it's basically a, a band-aid to fix problem which should just be fixed by developers rather than anything else but all it takes is a couple of vocal people to like it and to kind of uh, lobby for yeah, it and and it depends how you see it doesn't it i mean obviously you you know and I, I i'm not saying there's anything wrong with seeing it the way you have seen it because uh, it's it, it sounds like it is an issue of game balance now um when i used to play medieval total war when you went on to the uh, the multiplayer forums they would announce what the structures of the um, of the the game you were joining, because you know those were head to head battles of, you know up to four aside, eight aside. But you would have things like no art would be written on on you know quite a lot of the battles, which basically meant don't bring any cannons, no artillery. If you choose any artillery, you know we're going to quit the game. And you tended to find, and you know, I went on there for a few years, and you tended to find that actually the armies ended up being almost identical to each other because people had determined that there was a particular method of play. And then you watch them play, and what they would do is artillery first, cavalry charge, infantry, you know, support the cavalry. And it would be absolutely clockworked. And you were kind of sitting there thinking, well, actually, if everybody's playing in exactly the same way, using pretty much the same stuff, with only minor variations between how much they put into cavalry, how much they put into infantry, how much they put into this, how much they put into that it tends to come to a very, you know, very sort of procedural result. You tend to, to see very similar results. So I take it that was a, a fairly deterministic game then, by the sounds of it. Well, actually, it's, it's not if you, you know, if you play. I mean, I, I, I went in and I, I basically, you know, being the kind of person I am, they all chose all these things and I saw that they had all these very, you know, similar armies. And so I tried, I tried to play with stuff that they didn't use and, and I got royally spanked pretty much every time <laughs> but the but the point is is that actually it generated a different experience because everybody had you know sort of gone into a regimented sort of method of, of doing stuff and just to take your your dota example um warhammer has a similar situation whereby there is a, a tends to be an issue whenever there is a new codex released when a new codex released there is a level of rules creep can come in um, if you're not careful in terms of the balancing of you know the different armies and you see usually you can see and judge in tournaments depending on who's winning most of the tournaments you can determine which army is kind of less balanced or more balanced and of course that's why they then produce new additions and so on and so forth yeah. the how the hell they can balance warhammer i i, I don't know unless they collect <laughs> I, I stats and one thing we do yeah. with chaos reborn for example we have uh, you know these fairly sophisticated analytics that, that actually tracks a lot of data from you know hundreds of thousands of games and it's very interesting so we we use this to to balance the game Obviously, this is one of our main tools that we're, we're using to, you know, we, we see, for example, you know, which spells are commonly discarded and which spells are, you know, which talismans are commonly deployed and so on. But it, it's actually quite quite difficult because everything is in a state of flux because whether something is balanced or not also depends on how well players are familiar with the game and how they, you know, sometimes somebody can actually find a certain 
tactical strategy or rank exploit, if you want to call it that, that becomes successful and suddenly that becomes dominant. Um, but then somebody finds something which can counter that specific strategy and, you know, the previous dominant one becomes, you know, fades away again. And all this can happen without you changing any of the game data or any of the balancing data. This is something to do with the general interaction of lots of players playing over time. So actually the, the subject of game balance is an incredibly difficult one. And I think for a game like Dota 2 or even League of Legends, it's just, um, it's a huge huge difficult task to try and try and balance a game yeah i mean ultimately balance is about viable options creating viable options but the thing is by the sounds of was it total war you said alan you were playing and everybody had arrived at this one specific way of playing so ultimately what had happened is it just kind of degenerated yeah but in that situation, you know, because Alan bravely tried to find some kind of counter, you know, force to do something different that might counter it, but maybe there was nothing. Maybe there was just one dominant way to play the game and that was it. And I, I don't that's... know if it was bravely. I think it was <laughs> yeah. more foolishly than anything else. <laughs> but at so... the end of the day, Julian, like you said, if, if you've got these statistics and you're watching patterns emerge, players finding dominant yeah. strategies, ultimately, if it gets fixed by players finding counters, that's a good thing because it ultimately means that there are viable options in the game. And that that's, that yeah. should be like a, a token of success, yeah. I guess. Absolutely, no, I, I totally agree with you there, John. In that, if you look at if you look at something like X Wing at the moment, everybody is you know sort of it's it sort of um, becoming more and more popular. And one of the reasons it's becoming more and more popular is because people are you know are defining different strategies, finding different things. You know, they try one thing. Uh, as a you know as a as a hundred point sort of army list and it works really well and then they get defeated by something slightly different so they they go out and allocate something else and so on and uh, you know that kind of going round in circles and circles trying to i guess find the ultimate perfect or the best strategy for themselves and the best army that fits their strategy is you know is is the challenge and actually i think that you know that's that's great game design in that regard yeah i'm reminded of that that earlier when I said that I had those three gooey blobs, it's it's so funny because normally if if I'd had that in my hand, I'd be punching the air because it could you could make a real nuisance of yourself in the game with that. But the, the way the game worked out, I just didn't use them in the end because that that was the players I was against, and so I thought that was actually a good thing in the end that it wasn't so dominant that you know I would use it in every situation. So uh, kind of staying on the competition thing the competitive games market it's kind of replete with games that require players to pay money or grind for hours days or even months before they can compete effectively um, with players who've been playing for a while i mean if i remember correctly uh, originally you had a kind of leveling system in there for gear and i think that people were a bit unhappy about that so you you changed it some of them were yeah yeah so uh, how much of an impact has that had on you and going forward with the design how do you see the role of you know players having to affect i don't like the word grind but you know to level up in a way before they can actually play on a you know like a level playing field yes yeah, something that didn't really quite work out in case you're born because my idea was that the the players could find equipment level it up and still use it in the multiplayer environment now this would have worked okay-ish had there been a very huge player base with lots of new players coming in constantly so that our matchmaking system could always match players at the same level but of course that that's not the case and we can do it <laughs> yeah the, there's genuine sort of because such a lot of mmos and other games use grinding to level up and acquire stuff and of course lots of free-to-play games 
use this as a, a fundamental basis of the whole game progression, I think maybe a lot of players are coming in, becoming a little bit um, tired of it. So uh, you know, I just decided to remove that in the end. I, what we lost though is maybe a sense of progression that you could have within the realm exploration. And um, you know, at one point I, I toyed with the idea of having, when you enter a realm, you don't have anything except a very standard staff. And whatever you find in that realm, you had to use what have you bought from a shop you had to use? If you got experience points to level it up, you had to choose what you're going to level up and choose what you're going to use because you had to, with, the, with what you could find and what you can use is what you had to finish the realm with. So that was one idea that I did have. I didn't go with that one in the end either. Yeah, I mean, I suppose with MMOs, you know, the bulk of it is PvE, so progression is yeah. fairly harmless. But as soon as yeah. you have a PvP system, you know, it, it can be... Co- uh, matchmaking can kind of fix it, but as you said, you know, if you're in a situation where it's quite top-heavy, that the game's quite mature and nearly everybody's at the top, then you're going to have new players struggling to find matches and things like that. But ultimately, mm-hmm. as a as a new player, you you don't want a chance of being matched with somebody who's just going to beat you simply not because of skill, but or or um, strategy, but because they've just been playing the game longer and they've acquired gear. Yeah, because they're more powered up, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we removed that. And um, I think that's the the right decision. I mean, there's still lots of things you can do with the equipment because there's so many combinations and and basically depends on your play style as well. And of course, we've got the the classic mode, which doesn't use equipment at all, but it has a purely random selection of spells for battle. And I think a lot of players are happy with that as well. Realm-based power up is is tricky i think if you if you go into a a realm and obviously there are things that you you have to use within that realm and then you leave and they're perhaps not with you Mm -hmm. then which i think was what you were alluding to in terms of your your choices then essentially you're when you're managing the player experience the, the player's experience at the end of that you know that progression through the realm is one of regret to a point because they are you, you know, they are losing the things that they enjoyed, the tools that they have acquired and as they see yeah. it and, uh, and enjoyed losing, uh, enjoyed using, which I think is, you know, it's almost almost a letdown. It's almost a, a you know, a, a problem in terms of the way in which that works. That said, it does allow you greater flexibility as a um, as a designer to be able to then have all sorts of different stuff happen within one specific story. Yes. Um, and then just wipe it all away at the end so that um, so that it doesn't affect anything in a, a wider scope. Yeah, well, the reality is we, we're going to have both. So one of the things we're going to implement is what we call realm-bound items, which you can find in the realm but you can't take out of. And they might be some things which are very specifically tied to you know certain quests or objectives in, in that particular realm or certain stories we can build in that realm. And, of course, there are items that you can find in the realm that you can buy in the shops in the towns that you can take out with you and use again in somewhere else. So we we probably will have, I think we can use both elements. And one one of the reasons to have these realm-bound items is that they will could be tied into different stories and objectives. There might be, say, for example, a village who had a an artifact which gave them some powers to defend themselves against vampires or whatever, but they've lost it because it was stolen, and if you can find it for them, then you'd be rewarded in some way. And that kind of stuff could be very useful to flesh out the you know the experience of, of a realm. Absolutely. No, I, I think uh, it's a nice way of sort of tempering all sorts of different things, and there is a nice control element in the end the only issue is that um exit experience and trying to manage that exit experience in the right way so it's not 
oh, I lost all my stuff. <laughs> you know, I won, but I lost all my stuff. You know, and you kind of don't want people to think about it that way. Yeah, it depends. Uh, yeah, it depends tricky. exactly what kind of items they are. So I think they have to be items which are sort of quest based, if you like. Mm-hmm. They're things which are useful to people in the realm, which are not going to be useful outside it. So, but anyway, we'll see because I haven't really tried to develop that very much yet. Uh, one thing I did like actually is that if, if you go and fight a, another wizard who's got some minions ready uh, when you first start the game if you kill those minions when you go back and retry they won't yeah they, they don't reset was was that a conscious thing about you know trying to prevent players from hitting a wall and rage quitting or what was the thought behind that? Well it just seems sensible if you've if you've killed his allies they're dead so he doesn't have them <laughs> next time <laughs> I mean, the the thing is that they are they are constantly sort of generated though. So I mean, the the uh, as long as the wizard king has got citadels and his palace, he can create and keep creating and building his forces. But if you say so if you attack a an enemy wizard who's who's got eight allied creatures with him, it's going to be a very difficult battle. If you lose it, you may still have managed to kill most of his allies. So it means that the next time you go in to attack him, if you try and attack him quickly, he would be a bit weaker which is helpful, I guess, <laughs> to avoid the frustration of just having a, an enemy who just can't be defeated. Uh, the same actually applies to your your mercenaries that you hire, because you can hire them in the towns, and if they survive a battle, they will stay with you until you know the next battle. Um, but if they die, you've lost them. Same with the villagers, though, when you recruit a village, this is coming up in the new version of Case Reborn, the villages will basically generate fighters over time, up to a certain you know limit that they can, population limit that they can uh, support. And if they die, if they're wiped out, then the village will then just um, slowly rebuild its forces again. So again, you've got you've got something that regenerates there that can help you. If we're done on the competitive side of things, Alan, I think it's time for some fiction. And I suppose I'll open up the fiction section of this podcast with uh, one of the community questions was to you, Alan. It's the usual question that you get sometimes from a publisher, if you have one. Is the novel progressing? When is it out? And um, <laughs> uh, is, the, well, is the plan to release it at the same time as the game? Or uh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so where am I at at the moment? So at the moment I am researching, if you want some, some horrible detail, I'm researching a city called Urgench, which I believe is somewhere in Uzbekistan. <laughs> so that sounds that sound dense and, and nebulous enough for you and mysterious enough. Where am I at? Well, the novel is, it was always envisaged as being four to six parts. It's quite a weird structure in that regard. It's not, you know, not your sort of traditional beginning, middle, end structure. It's it's four to six parts in, in how it's, it's put together. Uh, I am currently at the in the first or second chapter of part five if you want a word count which is never meaningful until it's gone through an edit anyway that's somewhere around 104 to 105,000 words the projected first draft target is around 130,000 words in terms of where which would make it the longest single narrative story i've ever written so um so that's nice um wasn't wasn't necessarily planned to be that long but it, it is just you know the, the the story itself needs that kind of weight what um what's interesting is that i've actually i started writing some particular stuff which towards the end of part four which usually when i read in novels i i occasionally think that 
is a little bit over the top and actually felt that it was fine. You know, as a writer, I felt it was fine because the poor readers already read 90 odd thousand words to get to that point. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know quite how to, to sort of put that across. But, the, you know, the point being is that you're dealing with world changing events and world changing power and, you know, godlike power. And it's sort of about 97, 98,000 words. There is a scene where we are starting to glimpse this godlike power. And as I say, when I've read it in other books, I've kind of gone, hmm, uh, you know, I, I'm not convinced that this character is believable to me. And now they have godlike power. But of course, you know, at this stage, as I say, they've, you know, you've had your beer and chips with them. So it kind of, kind of feels like uh, it's a progression. So I'm, you know, I'm quite, quite happy with that in terms of what's there sorry john that was a really long-winded way of answering your question no that's fine in fact you brought up you made me think of another question actually which um okay. I, I, I no one else might be interested um obviously games one of the things that sets games apart from other works of fiction is in a game obviously i mean obviously there's permadeath games out there but in general you don't like to punish players and you know when they die they come back pretty quickly but of course as a, as a trope that in fiction can kind of ruin it because there's this kind of lack of peril. So mm. how have you dealt with that? Yeah, that that's that's a very interesting question. Okay, so that's something we're actually we're dealing with at the moment in the story. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a bit careful here in terms of how I answer. No spoilers. Because, <laughs> no, yeah, no spoilers, and also and also um, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest something which we need to be very careful about. So we have a concept in the narrative. Uh, so in the in the fiction of the true death of wizards, and there are items that exist within the the world that can proper kill wizards, proper completely destroy them. Those items become part of you know part of the plot as um, as certain wizards are desperate to kill other wizards. They you know they they resort to effectively they resort to trying to find the tactical nuclear weapons of the of the world to try and do it similarly there is also julian's given me this lovely structure from which to work so one of the ways in which i've been handling the idea of wizards transitioning so going from being a wizard to being a god is through death so there are moments where wizards are defeated but that defeat is a release and that release enables them to transcend their mortal form because there is still enough uh, belief in them there is still enough uh, sort of magical trapping of their of their existence for them to retain a, a a spiritual form and so essentially they transcend and they you know they become gods um i'm actually i'm i'm writing about that specific process and uh, and a character getting used to the idea of having transitioned uh, at the moment can i can talk a bit more about what our plans are because julian's sort of gone through the you know the the sort of the next iteration of the game and i can talk a little bit about where we are with fiction essentially we're you know we're waiting a little bit on cues from from the game team as to when they're ready for particular things but what we've started to do um Lavecon was was really useful because having julian over in in the uk meant i could introduce him to lots of people like chris jarvis and colin ford what we've started to do is started to look at ways in which we can not just, you know, not just write a book, but, you know, ways in which we can use the fiction to cover more of the, the Chaos Reborn experience 
and the idea of the you know the wizard's life essentially so in that regard i've started to draft a few very tiny short stories which will you know when we're when we're ready we'll start to percolate onto the the chaos reborn website and they're little tasters as to the experience of a wizard uh going from first principles so going from when they're plucked uh out of where they were living before they're taken to a wizard's tower they are trained their magic is awakened in them and you know then their adventures their initial adventures as an apprentice and what what happens to them uh to sort of give a flavor as to what the the world is like what can happen where these you know these images and these other elements of the game kind of come from uh and one of the things we want to ensure that you know is kind of quite clear is how the place where wizards go to prior to them going off into the realms to adventure limbo how limbo works what is going on in limbo how limbo relates to everything else this is and you know and i recognize we're trying to create a universe that is is vast and is also encompassing you know the player experience so we want to then offer the opportunity for players to write their own narratives that become part of that official canon so essentially these stories will give a guide as to what uh, what we expect the stories to you know, to be like you know the kind of framework the kind of word length um, and then you know we'll be accepting submissions and essentially at that stage what I'm happy to do is I'll I'll sort of sit on some of those submissions and give some advice to people on getting the um, the sort of flavor of uh, the chaos reborn world and, and 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 universe correct within the the way in which they're writing their fiction so that the mythos is expanded by what they write but is also acknowledges their place within the mythos so you know essentially you know if you're playing the game and you have a great adventure through a realm and you then decide to write that up as a little short story. What I want to be able to do is help you with that to make that something we can embrace and celebrate as part of the the fiction that is is placed up on the site. Um, so other players see it, other players enjoy your adventure, and it becomes something that everybody can access and kind of go, cool. That's you know that's a really interesting story. I wonder where you know where I can find an experience like that oh i'll go and play chaos reborn you know so the idea is that the two things sort of tie together as uh, as things go that sounds really excellent and something we could do which would be very interesting is to tie in some of the the wizard kings or those who get promoted to wizard kings who are have the um, privilege and opportunity to design their own realms it would be great if some of them could develop stories from their realm creation process would be really cool or even feedback the other way i mean it could be a story that somebody's written that then someone tries to build a realm around in some way it would be very very cool yeah it, it's it's tricky i mean i remember back when i was first playing neverwinter nights um, one of my friends yeah got a, a you know an adventure that somebody had downloaded and you know all that he downloaded and somebody had made and he said oh it's one of the best role-playing adventures there and so we we generated characters and we went in the first person i spoke to was a guard and i i was kind of testing the role-playing envelope as it were mm -hmm. and this guard i i was playing a sort of prideful some sort of sort of prideful tribesman and this guard said something that was a little bit insulting not much but 
basically the kind of insulting that says respect my authority go that way mm-hmm. and so my my you know I, I sort of role played the character and my character reacted in a way of punching him in the face and of course then immediately every guard in the entire game just chased me for the entire <laughs> so my experience was completely, oh, no matter where I was my experience was completely ruined and actually my you no know my whole intention my whole intention was just this one small thing you know it wasn't to to sort of end up with this you know and i guess the the realm designer was planning for the fact that no no i'm not i'm going to deal with bad players so it is a really tricky thing to to balance when people have story expectations yeah um you know uh, and i i think i think we've kind of you know we've got to be a little bit cautious in that how those expectations then map into the way in which fiction then works for you know for everything but uh you know i certainly see that the you know the realm design process is going to be fascinating for people to then record as a narrative i think that'd be that'd be awesome you know it'd be you know we, we could get some really interesting things from that well they could build stories out of their experience like you said i mean the germ of the story is there in the in the gameplay and then it's developed into something much more substantial and interesting as a story because I mean, the yeah, the case we brought on, yeah, the realm design tools are never going to be something like Neverwinter Nights. It's not fundamentally yeah. a role-playing game in that sense. We have parties mm-hmm. of different characters. But there is an opportunity there for the players who enter the realm, some kind of um, interesting background, I guess. I think as well, it's, it's, it's just a matter of the priority of process. So as far as I, I sort of see it, is that the game process is first, and actually, then if you start shaping a narrative out of your game process, yeah. whether it's the realm design or whether it's the the adventure, yeah. you know, I think yeah. that I think that works. Yeah, sure. If you try, Either if way. you try and go to the game with a narrative expectation, you may well let yourself down. You know, if you see what I mean. That was, I guess, was the the worry because, of course, you know, any game's parameters have to fit in certain things for the game experience to work. So. You know, it, it does require, I, I think, a certain way round for it to Well, to what, what it, uh, the fiction, I guess, allows you to do is to, to go beyond mm. the elements of the game, which are necessarily, you know, relatively simple in many ways. You know, for example, at the moment in the, the Realm Quest game, you, you're essentially going in there as, as somebody who wants to overthrow a king, and that's it. That's more or less the thing that you do every realm not that you have to do that but that's basically the way it works at the moment but of course that you know narratively speaking is not always going to (laughs) result in an interesting story yeah i mean i've got at the moment one of the uh the stories that's that's due out um in the sequence and i'm I'm hoping to write 10 little tasters which um which will go out week by week when uh when we're ready to to start putting them forward and these will also these will um be previewed with um with the gods forum beforehand so the gods forum will see some of this uh you know um in the next probably in the next few weeks but one of those tasters is uh, a young wizard walking around the aftermath of a battle and the battle is between the wizard king of the realm actually a wizard queen but mm. you know the wizard queen of the realm and somebody else who has invaded and this this apprentice wizard is just walking about with a dwarf that he hired uh from a local tavern and observing the futility, you know, the, the cost and the, the way in which, which lives have been sacrificed, which I think is, you know, is interesting observation on, um, on what's already there. And then similarly, 
I've looked at the the rituals of of how a, a gifted individual becomes a wizard in the first place, what they have to go through to invoke the magic, how they are trained in its you know its teaching, and you know all of those those kind of stories also give you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about what's actually out there, what space you are actually adventuring into, um, yeah. and so what people a, are trying to do. A different perspective on the kind of um, events and occurrences mm. in the game, yeah. Uh, so in addition to that, John, just to, um, to to talk through some of the other projects we've got lined up, um, Chris Jarvis is currently um, doing the first stages of looking at uh, Chaos Reborn audio drama, which... Uh, he's got one story already fairly well fleshed out. He knows what he's going to do with it, but he's he's just sort of looking into the first stages of that at the moment. And uh, Colin Ford, who's a colleague of mine from Buxton University, who teaches um, on the film and television course and has been Julian's number one fan for about, I don't know, 20-odd years. Um, uh, well, more than that, because back back in, in Rebel Stars day, so so quite some, some time longer than that, um, he's looking into... Uh, some elements of a role-playing game, which um, he wants to to sort of put together, so that there is then an idea of again fleshing out the experience of the wizard beyond uh, just the the game experience, so that we get an idea of of everything that is going on, how the wizard goes to different places, what those places look like, um, and what they mean to the rest of uh, of the Chaos Reborn universe. Um, obviously, I've spoken to Colin and Chris about this already, so I, I'm really interested to see what they come up with. If if you're happy, we can do a couple of the community questions. Absolutely. Let's yeah, go for it. Fine. So uh, you kind of touched on it uh, a few minutes ago, Julian, talking about Chaos Reborn. And, you know, it's not strictly an RPG, but it has got elements of RPGs to it. So a lot of the questions sure. were talking about what is there going to be. So one of the questions was, if you're not a Forge Master, then why are you going to care about wizard level? Does character progression need to exist for the game to still be considered an RPG? No, it doesn't need to exist. In fact, the, the wizard level, as it is in the game at the moment, is basically just a representation of your experience, enhanced a bit by your your skill as well. So obviously the more skillful players will probably be able to gather their, increase their wizard levels a bit more quickly, but nonetheless, as you battle on and go through realms and multiplayer games, you'll be able to build. So that's really what the wizard level in, its, in itself represents. It doesn't, unlike uh, many other RPGs doesn't give you access to automatically to to more power or make you a better wizard or in, in any way. So I'm thinking of tying the wizard level into just a few, just to basically unlocking some of the uh, other elements that we've got in the game. But most of the role playing in the game is going to come from players acting out these social roles as wizard lords, wizard kings, and demigods and gods. These are not, you know, really limited by the the mechanics of wizard battles the more how players organize and cooperate together so i think that will be the most interesting side of the art role-playing element of the game if our for example our invasion and ally mechanic works very well for the realms what we will be able to do is where you know where players are acting you know the wizards are acting as wizard lords or wizard kings in realms and they get to play those characters actually in battle they will be encouraged to do it um, from a role-playing point of view 
So, for example, if you're a king who's created a realm and obviously you've written all kinds of encounters and stuff that's going on in the realm, and then if someone faces you in, in battle or maybe as as you're adventuring, perhaps, you will be able to interact with that player in some way, be able to communicate with them, and, um, and you'll be playing the role of the king of that realm. That's what I would like to explore, but so we haven't defined very much of that side of the game yet. It's it's an interesting point because this is actually where we start to get into the different expect, expectations around the word role-playing and role-playing game. Specifically where the, the idea, most of the, the sort of perception of a role-playing game in a computer role-playing game tends to be around those, those ideas of leveling and improvement yeah. and so on. And actually, when you go and play tabletop role-playing games, they're less about that. Usually, the focus is on how you play the character with other people. Yeah. And the the powering, the, the reward, the experience, the other things are a function of the continuing narrative of the character. Now, there are many, you know, and I, I've cited Amber, but there are, there are other role-playing games that don't necessarily do, you know, they don't go too much into the idea of, experience and progression some games do some games don't some games prefer you to be playing a particular role rather than a role that is going to you know the the dungeons and dragons method is always the the idea of you start as an a you know as an inexperienced warrior and you progress to becoming a, a you know an experienced warrior or a master warrior other games look at it and say well you can you can start in this position you can start in this position and, and actually, it's about the story that you're going into um, rather than anything else. Something like um, Call of Cthulhu as, a, as an example, where actually, yes, you might progress, but you're going to you're going to gradually become insane <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as you progress. And and ultimately, the more you read of magic and learn of magic, the more likely you are to become insane. So. You know, so actually your progression is what is destroying you. So, you know, there's many ways you can kind of play that around. And actually looking to focus on the interactions of players and how they generate character-driven story between each other is, you know, it's a much richer way of, of kind of looking at that kind of thing. I'm yeah, sorry I if I'm right. sounding... No, I think you're absolutely I'm sorry, right. I'm sorry if I'm sounding preachy, though. That's, no, no, um, that I isn't think this me is absolutely to... correct. And I, I would love to explore ways within Chaos Reborn to promote that side of role-playing. Rather than, as you say, you know, a traditional single-player role-playing game, you, you're playing through a particular story, you create a character which is set of stats, you level up, you gain stuff and equipment, and so on. But yeah, the real... Um, social inter interaction at, at, at different levels is something that we can do something very interesting with with Chaos Reborn. Okay, uh, another theme through some of these questions, um, I don't know if we're going to get to all of them, but um, a lot of people are asking about uh, realm creation and the kind of tools that are going to be available. Right. Um, yes. So uh, I take it this is, a, this is a bit off, far off yet, but... Um, Necessarily, I mean, we—I've been thinking about when to release the realm creation. We do have a realm editor. I mean, it's a functioning realm editor, and you, know, you have to operate within certain parameters when you're creating a realm. It allows, you know, so all the realms that we're creating at the moment are, are, are built here using our realm editor. I would like to unleash this realm editor soon, but I think what we need to do is stabilize more the features and functioning of the realm mode itself, and then we will, I think, be ready to unleash a, a sort of version one of the realm editor one of the questions in particular was talking about practically what is going to be the difference between a player created realm and one that's say been procedurally generated or you know well procedurally generated realms have 
you know, preset encounters and little, you know, it'll be missing some of the story and background elements that, that players can put into their own realms. So at the moment in Realm Medicine, we've got something very, some very simple things. You can create custom encounters, which can have different outcomes. And again, you can write those if you want to, or you can just use the, you know, the preset list of encounters. You can create descriptions for the towns. And that is it, actually. These, these are sort of the only custom things that you can put in. Apart from that, you're just using all the elements that are available to the um, procedural generation system. I don't want to make it too complicated, but I do want to make it flexible enough so players can put a bit of interest and flavor into their realms that can make it a bit more of an interesting experience for players who to enter them. Yeah, because one of the questions was, you know, will the creators be able to write and script events within the realm? I guess, is that going to add a kind of level of complexity that might kind of hinder a, a lot? It might do. If there's a way we can do it simply without having something, you know, I mean, the, the realm made is going to be on several levels. If you want to use um, pre-configured elements and you can actually put together a realm within half an hour, <laughs> I, I guess quite a few players, maybe not not a majority, but there will be a few players who really want to put some time and effort into their realm creation. And I think it would be nice to give them some tools to create that extra bit of personal creativity in there. It's not going to be very complicated, so it's it's going to evolve. We'll see. One of the questions, and I think you mentioned this earlier, but it was, um, are there any future mode or competition plans where uh, it'll operate as a kind of a straightforward random multiplayer, similar to the offline mode, Uh, a mode purely for the random chaos experience where no two matchups are ever alike, random gear, lots of different combinations, things like that. Yeah, it's possible we could, uh, yeah, for a random gear mode, which is sort of what we did have a little while back, could make a comeback. The problem we've got at the moment is that um, if we have too many multiplayer options, the multiplayer base will be split too too much, and we'd have to do something about our matchmaking system to change it. Well, actually, change it from a matchmaking system to a yeah, sort of game list system. So, yeah, we've got plenty of plans, but probably now is not the right time to yeah, implement sure. them. Because I think that I think what they're getting out with that is obviously um, kind of going back to these people who are trying to min max and find the you know the best gear. Um, well, the problem, yeah, the problem with the initial version of the gear, and and this is you know people say that um, we're saying that well you know people just spend a lot of time finding the best gear, and once they found it, they just stick to the same thing all the time. But that again is a question of how the game and items within the game are balanced and it's a bit of a process it takes time so for example some of the talismans were overpowered actually what we've done with this latest release we've taken one of those talismans and actually converted it into a spell so we had a talisman called mercurius which gave you basically a wizard flying ability so we've now translated that into the magic wing spell which used to be in the original chaos that'll be a new spell in the game and mercurius talisman has been removed and we've we create another talisman in its place. So basically for any particular equipment loadout, there's always going to be one or more other equipment loadouts that would be reasonably good at countering it. So there's never going to be a case that one thing is ever going to be completely dominant. And it's more down to the player's 
personal style or preference for playing and their willingness to experiment with stuff. So once we start adding more spells, of course, this will become a bit more interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the best scenario, obviously, is just it's perfectly balanced. So, you know, you don't have to consider those things. Uh, and I think what they were just getting at is they wanted, you know, like a like a true test of strategy because you could be thrown it's in. The random equipment, yeah. yeah. I agree with it. It's, it's good. It would be nice to have that back. But yeah, splitting the, the, the player base is a bit of an issue for Winter. I guess. Unless, of course, it becomes as uh, popular as Dota 2, and then you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it for this special Chaos Reborn episode of Leave Radio. Thank you to Alan, and of course, thank you to Julian for joining us this evening. Thank you. And I hope you'll come back in a six months' time or something, when there's lots more stuff to talk about. It would be my pleasure. Uh, so, it, just to let you know, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email us info at laveradio.com. You can find us facebook.com slash laveradio or at laveradio on Twitter. Or you can join our TeamSpeak server where there's people always hanging out, chatting, playing games, uh, including Chaos Reborn. There's a, there's a Chaos Reborn channel on there and you might be able to find a game. That's laveradio.teamspeak3.com. So, until next time, fly safe. And if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Two seconds, I'll be right back.